I, a lot of times I've heard the number 10% thrown out, thrown around as kind of an industry standard. Uh, for me as a working guide, you know, I, I've spent the most of my guiding career working for other outfits. I'm just now kind of starting my own outfit. But as a working guide, tips tips are important to my livelihood. You don't always make a lot of money in this business if you're just the guide and, uh, you know, tips help. So 10% is generally what I heard, I've heard. Um I always very much appreciate it. Just, you know, maybe the guy's been saving up for a long time and he can't afford a big tip, but he wants to give you a little something to, you know, show his gratitude. And, you know, that's still, that means a lot to me that he's appreciative of the work that I put in to try to give him a successful life. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Appreciate everyone tuning in for another episode. I'm Sam Weaver, host of today's Tipsy Tuesday, a short segment covering rockslide.com tidbits, hunting news from across the West, with just a sprinkling of tips and tricks to keep you well-informed for your next adventure. Last episode, we heard about picking and bedding an outfitter. In today's Tipsy Tuesday, we are joined by Josh Ellis, lifelong Alaskan resident, and now a guide. Josh has been guiding for mountain goats, style sheep, and coastal brown bears for over 13 years. Today, he's going to share a bit about a guide's insight. Josh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. All right. I guess my first question is I'm interested in, you know, now we've narrowed it down. We decided to go with you. What kind of questions should we be asking when we talk to you? I mean, obviously there's a lot that goes into a guided hunt, uh, both from the guide's perspective and the client's perspective. Uh, and I think the most important thing a client can do is is to ask the questions that has him prepared for the hunt. Um, a lot of guys don't don't know what they're getting into on a guided hunt, especially a sheep hunt, as far as you know, the physical uh, challenges of the hunt, the mental challenges of the hunt. Uh, obviously, where I am, you're in Alaska, weather is uh, a big thing. You know, you lose days in the tent. Guys aren't prepared for that. So just, you know, the more questions the client can ask and the more information that the guide can share that, you know, uh, allows that client to be prepared as far as what to expect, what kind of gear to have, and so forth, you know, that's the more prepared the client's going to be, the better chance uh, they're going to be successful. Yeah, some of these questions I was reading online, I really had never even thought about, like on a sheep hunt, you know, who brings the food and who carries it? You know, I just assumed that that would be naturally what I would do. But is that a question we should be asking, something like that? I mean, it is. You know, a guide, a guide might take that question for granted, but, you know, as the client, you can't know, uh, especially if you don't do a lot of guided hunts. So, yeah, who brings the food, who provides the food? You know, for my hunters and, and the outfits I work for, we provide the food. Uh, but a lot of guys, you know, especially with Mountain House, Peak Fuel or whatever, a lot of guys have their favorites. So if you have something you want, you know, it's a good idea for the client to bring that. And you're not going to know that by not asking. You know, I get a lot of questions about tents. Should I bring a tent? You know, guides generally provide the tents. So those are good things to ask. You know, gear is obviously a big thing, especially in this day and age. Everybody wants the new best and lightest gear. So, you know, the more questions you ask, even as simple as they may be, it's going to be allowed you to be more prepared. 
I have a question on optics. You know, I know when people do sheep hunt, there's a lot of talk about sharing your spotting scope with with a guide and whatnot. Uh, do you have a personal preference on on that? You think it's easier maybe for people that don't want to carry it? It's not a big deal or? Really on a sheep hunt, you only need one spotting scope. A lot of guys really enjoy the experience of watching the animal. And if a guide is behind the glass, you know, trying to make a judgment call, whether that animal's legal or not, there might not be a lot of time for the client to to take a look. So a lot of guys, you know, a lot of hunters like to bring their own glass just so they can sit there and, and watch the animal and the animal's movements. And, you know, that's one of the one of the things about the experience is just seeing the animals in their natural environment. So personally, I prefer just to bring one because, you know, we're hoping to come out heavy. So the lighter we go in, the better. But for guys that, you know, are used to having their own spotter and like to spend a lot of time behind it, there's no problem with bringing it as well. Yeah, that was my thought. I haven't been on a sheep hunt in Alaska yet, but, you know, if I went, I'd I sure, it'd be hard to be watching somebody else looking through the spotting scope and, and me wondering what they're seeing over there. So, yeah, I mean, I try to let my guys watch, you know, as much as possible if I've already decided what the sheep is or I want them to enjoy the experience. So, as much time as they can spend behind the glass, they're going to enjoy watching those animals. But if, if you're up against a very physically challenging hunt and weight, weight is always a factor, then, you know, you have to weigh the pros and cons, whether it's good to bring that second spotter or not. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing really is to be honest with yourself. You have to know your own uh, capabilities and don't put yourself right on the ragged edge trying to get a bunch of extra stuff up there. Yeah, no, that's sheep hunts can go hunts, you know, anytime you're hunting the mountains, they can be very physically demanding. I like an easy one every now and then, but that's not the norm. So the lighter you can go in, it's it's going to make it easier on the way out, especially if you're successful and you got a sheep on your back. Um, and even I think there's a misconception out there that guided hunts are easier on the client. They think the guide's Superman and can carry everything. And granted, a lot of hunts, you know, there's a packer, but on my sheep hunts, there's no packer. It's me and a guide, or excuse me, me and a client. And um, if we kill a sheep between that sheep and camp, you're going to have a heavy load. So, you know, the misconception that it's easy, you're not going to be that heavy if you're the client is not true. What do you tell people about getting physically in shape? What are kind of your guidelines there? Uh, legs and lungs, strong legs and be in cardio shape. Otherwise, when you're climbing up that hill, you're going to be huffing and puffing and, you know, out of breath and generally miserable. So the more you can prepare your legs and be in good cardio, it's going to give you a better chance of being successful. Is there a rule of thumb on however long your hunt is? Let's say it's seven days. Is there a rule of thumb of how many of those days we'll be hunting? Is that a conversation we should be having about the length of how many hunting days we should have on the total trip or? Well, every outfit's different. You know, the folks I sheep hunt for, we do seven day hunts. So that's seven hunting days. Usually you're into the field a day or two ahead of time. You know, for instance, sheep season in Alaska starts on August 10th every year. So a lot of times we fly in August 8th, hike in the 8th and the 9th, and then we're hunting the 10th and you have seven hunting days. And then, uh, then a day travel out. All right. Good to know. What about marksmanship? What, what do you tell people there? I know that that can be pretty subjective. Yeah. I mean, in this day and age with uh, long range shooting, it's kind of a hot topic, but obviously being familiar with your rifle, um, knowing your system, being familiar with your range finder. Uh, you know, I prefer my clients bring their own range finder because they're familiar with them and they know how to use them. If a client shows up and he gives me such and such range finder, I've never used it before, you know, that's, uh, and, and he doesn't know how to use it, then 
what good does that do? So just understanding whatever, you know, I'm not a long range shooter by any means. Um, but I know there's a lot that goes into it as far as, you know, understanding the ballistics and, and reading the wind and, and all of that. So the more familiar, the more prepared, the more you have practice, it's only going to, you know, up your chances of being successful and, um, you know, just know your system. You know, I, I do get a lot of guys that show up and they don't know how to operate their own rangefinder, or they don't know if it compensates for angle or not. And that's a pretty important thing when you're hunting in the mountains and, you know, shots are at very steep angles. If, you know, you, you range that animal and it says 300 yards and, we're at a pretty severe slope, but you don't know if your rangefinder is an angle compensating rangefinder, then we might have issues. So just know your gear, be familiar with your gear, be well practiced with it and uh, be confident in it and confident in yourself. Yeah. And that's another instance of, you got to be honest with yourself. If you can't shoot out there, don't say that you can, cause then that's an expectation that you have for them. Yeah. A lot of guys show up and, um, They tell me all day long, 500 yards, 600 yards. Oh yeah, no problem. Piece of cake. But when it comes time to, uh, to make that shot, the confidence isn't there. And I've, I've seen some things go haywire. So obviously, you know, the long range thing, I'm personally not a fan of, I try to get as close to the animal as possible and that should be our goal. So it's, it's only fair to the animal and, and to yourself to, to give your yourself the best chance to cleanly kill that animal. So by trying to get as close as you can and, and understanding your your weapon system and and all the gear that goes into it, the rangefinder and, and your scope, and 100% confident in that that's what you do to, to be prepared to go on a sheep hunt. All right, good tips. Uh, one other question I guess I wanted to ask kind of about is licenses and tags. And, you know, every area is different up there in Alaska. Got a lot of different rules for every kind of little place. I know one time I went with a, a transporter and I was supposed to have a BLM, I don't know, use tag. And it was like $6, but nobody told me about it. Then when I got back and the fish cop wanted to see it, you know, that cost me a sweet 350 bucks ticket. I didn't know. So I uh, you know, people should be asking you about it and make sure they got all their stuff lined out. I don't think anybody should take that for granted. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's a good thing to ask your outfitter beforehand. What Besides just your basic hunting license and, you know, your harvest ticket and locking tag, is there anything else I need? For the most part, the outfitter better know and have that covered ahead of time. He shouldn't put that on the, the responsibility on the client and any kind of particular, you know, land use permit or whatever that's that's the outfitter's job but it would be good for the client to you know ask ahead of time hey is there anything else you know any kind of land use permit i need or anything funny like that but uh, ultimately that you know that that's on the outfitter let's talk about gear lists do you have a, a specific gear list you know like maybe your outfitter has one and then you have a few extra things that you like your client to have or or not to have or is it basically the straight list you work off one list how does that all work out so usually an outfitter will have a gear list they'll give a client uh you know how it works for my hunts client will show up and then uh, we'll go through everything he brought we'll have already had given him a gear list and you know he'll buy what he needs or get together whatever he needs and then he'll show up then we'll go through it and anything we, he doesn't need for the hunt uh we get rid of uh, if he's has doubles and if he brought two headlamps you know you probably don't need two headlamps if you're doing an august sheep hunt you probably don't need any headlamp but you know stuff like that just try to save weight so we go through the gear and uh, and just make sure you got everything you need and you're not going to be carrying too much stuff and between the hunter and the guide paired. So 
I wouldn't say there's one specific item that I, I want guys to bring, but, you know, personally, I, I like two one-man tents. You know, a lot of time you get stuck in the tent for a couple of days. It's nice to have your own space. So I usually provide the hunter with his own tent. It's good to have a water bladder or at least some capacity to carry water. A lot of places we hunt, there isn't a lot of water available, especially when you get up high. So you're you're packing water around, you know, just stuff like that, just to make sure uh, prepared and ready for whatever is going to happen on the hunt. What's your thoughts on sharing a stove? I mean, I I generally only bring one stove between me and a hunter. Yeah, in a rare occasion, it might be nice to have a backup if if it breaks. But I've never had, knock on wood, I've never had that happen. And, uh, you know, basically on a sheep hunt, you're just boiling water probably twice a day, morning and, and for dinner. So, you know, one stove, a couple bottles of fuel. A lot of times my hunter isn't too heavy. I'll have him carry an extra small bottle. But generally, I just bring one stove and uh, we, we're good to go. I was curious about tipping. Is there a standard? Is there something in the business for guys that don't go on a lot of these from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Um, I, a lot of times I've heard the number 10% thrown out thrown around as kind of an industry standard. Uh, for me as a working guide, you know, I, I've spent the most of my guiding career working for other outfits. I'm just now kind of starting my own outfit. But as a working guide, tips tips are important to my livelihood. You don't always make a lot of money in this business if you're just the guide and, uh, you know, tips help. So 10% is generally what I heard, I've heard. Um, I always very much appreciate it. Just, you know, maybe the guy's been saving up for a long time and he can't afford a big tip, but he wants to give you a little something to, you know, show his gratitude. And, you know, that's still, that means a lot to me that he's appreciative of the work that I put in to try to give him a successful hunt. So it's kind of a controversial s- subject, but as just a guy trying to make a living, you know, packing around the mountains, those tips certainly help. You know, if if it weren't for them, then I, I probably wouldn't be able to do this for a living. Rod, I appreciate your uh, candor on this, and I agree with you. The hunting season's only so long, and you got to try to maximize your opportunity. And you know, just being on a trip and trying to get them the best opportunities they can means you're pushing for however many days that takes, not just trying to get the next guy in there and make a little extra. Yeah, I mean, you know, I like the guys that show up. You know, they've been saving, and this might be their once in a lifetime trip, and they're looking forward to the experience. And maybe it's something they've never done before. And I want to do everything I can to give them that experience to make that trip everything they thought it was going to be. And uh, maybe if we're lucky, even be successful killing an animal. As a guide, you can't you can't just go through the motions. I'm sure there's there's horror stories of guides that do that, but you have to give everything you can, use all of your experience to give that hunter the best hunt you can. That's the way I look at the hunt. It's you know, I might take it for granted that I live in Alaska and I get to do this for a living and I'm hunting every sheep season, but that guy it might be his once in a lifetime hunt, so I better do everything I can to give him the trip that he's always dreamed about. I don't know. I've been weighing the pros and cons of trying to get a sheep hunt i talk about it a lot but you know now is the time to do it these prices are only going up these opportunities are shrinking you know a few bad winters and just like mule deer you know sheep populations fluctuate so greatly and you know you don't know what next year will bring and matter of fact you can't book for next year you know you're booking what three three years out typically yeah i mean it's especially in alaska uh, the sheep aren't doing the greatest right now. We've had some bad winters. The prices are absolutely insane. I was just, you know, down at a show in Dallas and I, I was talking to a stone sheep outfitter in Canada and he's going to 125,000 for a stone sheep hunt. And that, that just blows my mind. And that prices out the working guy, the guy that saves up 
the guy that just wants to experience a mountain hunt but might not have the the means to to pay you know 40 50 60 let alone 125,000 for a sheep hunt so if you're going to do it prices aren't going down i hate to say it but you know the the money is you, you, the experience is something that you can't put a price on but when you're talking that kind of money um and it's it's only going up and and i hate to say it but you know it's turning into a rich man sport and that's pretty unfortunate so if you're going to do a sheep hunt and the money is a concern you know they're not getting cheaper you, you know do it now if you can um and you know as for me you know, just starting my own outfit. I want to, I want to make sheep hunting accessible to the working guy. So I'm trying to keep my prices as low as reasonably possible to make sure that those guys have an opportunity to experience what I love. And, and that's dull sheep hunting in Alaska. One of the aspects that people don't realize until they get to Alaska is logistics. I mean, just getting things anywhere from one place to another is expensive in Alaska. Getting it to Alaska uh, ups the price there. I don't know. I mean, just aviation fuel is crazy to me. And those hours add up in a hurry. Yeah. It makes my eyes pop when I see some of these prices. But, you know, you look at the price of of aviation fuel and it it starts to uh, make a lot more sense. There's a misconception that there's no overhead and, you know, it's all profit, but that's just not true. There's a lot that goes into running a, a hunting outfit, you know, especially if you're running airplanes or boats or or you have a bunch of equipment. One of the biggest factors that a lot of people don't think about is, is the government's in our pocket. You know, there's land use fees, insurance, uh, you know, licenses. You know, my guide license, I think I pay 850 bucks every two years, and that's just to, to be allowed to guide. So when you start taking all that stuff into consideration, you know, the profit margins aren't always the greatest. So prices may be high, but there's a reason. And you throw in supply and demand, and unfortunately, that's the direction that the prices of a sheep hunter are going right now. Yeah, last time I was in Alaska, and, you know, I don't know, it's been six or seven years probably, I spent $4 on a Coke. It was I was happy to spend $4 on a Coke. Right. I, I think it's just those things you take for granted here aren't things that you can take for granted there. Yeah. I mean, you buy something in Alaska, it probably came up here on a barge uh, or an airplane. So, you know, everything is inherently going to be more expensive. Fuel is always expensive. And especially when you start getting out in those remote locations out in the villages and the bush, it's insanely expensive. So, you know, when your eyes get big at the price of a sheep hunt or a moose hunt or a caribou hunt, a lot of it is just the cost of operating in those very remote places. I want to shift gears a little bit. We're running kind of long here, but I I just want to touch on this because when I think Alaska, I think these gigantic coastal brown bears. I mean, that's probably an unrealistic adventure for me to ever have, but I think it's just so awesome. They're such a majestic part of Alaska. You want to tell us just a little bit about what goes into hunting one of those big things? How much do they weigh typically? I mean, they're so big, you'd probably be pretty hard-pressed to put one on a scale. But those giant coastal brown bears, you know, they say they can push 12, 1,500 pounds. I know Matt, who I guide for up out of Toke, he has a bear baiting operation, and they kill some real nice grizzly bears, you know, nine-foot grizzly bears. And he's able to bring some of them out whole and has actually put them on the scale. And I and I want to say he, he had a nine-foot grizzly bear, uh, I think it was pushing 900 pounds. So you start looking at those coastal brown bears that are eating fish, and, you know, on Kodiak or the Alaska Peninsula, um, a fall bear, I could definitely see pushing 1,500 pounds. And you're right. They are, you know, there's no more. I love doll sheep, uh, but there's probably no more impressive animal in Alaska or the world than a, a large brown bear. They are just, you can't, it's hard to fathom the strength. 
they're incredibly fast when they want to be. They're just they're they're a beautiful animal and they're just they're just supremely impressive. I went up there hunting caribou and well, I didn't see any coastal brown bears, but they had a bunch of grizzlies where we were, and they were just so impressive. I remember we landed on a on a sandbar, and I don't know, we went like two miles, and it took like six and a half hours or something across the tundra, plugging away. And I saw one come out of the mountains, run across that thing down to the river to eat some salmon, and it took him about eight minutes. And I was just like, yep, you don't run away from that guy. Like, that's that, that thing gets you when he wants to. I've heard they're faster than a quarter horse, so I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, if you've seen one, you know, close up and when he's in four-wheel drive, they are uh, quite impressive. All right, Josh. Well, I appreciate I'll uh, have to get you back on here. We'll have to share some guiding stories maybe and some gear tips. Yeah, man. Uh, I got all kinds of stories. If You know, if we get a little more time, we can get into, you know, sleeping on the mountain and bear stories and uh, all that good stuff. So I appreciate you having me here and Happy to talk hunting and sheep hunting. I, I love to do it and, uh, you know, be happy to join you anytime. People got any questions for her, they want to get in touch with you. How, where can they find you at? That's a good question. Rockslide, I think it's a, uh, Adventure907. 907 is, is the handle. And I do have an Instagram page. That's kind of what I've been using uh, as a business website. I don't have a website specifically, but Ellis Expeditions. And I think there's an underscore between Ellis and Expeditions. You can find me on Instagram and I occasionally put a few pictures up there. Instagram, Ellis Expeditions or, uh, you know, on Rockslide at Adventure 907. All right, Josh, I appreciate you making some time for us, and I look forward to catching up with you before sheep season. Cool. Sounds good, Sam. I appreciate being here, and uh, yeah, anybody got any questions, reach out anytime. Description will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you, and that's before you apply the 20% RockCast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. Moving on for the do-it-yourselfer wanting to hunt Alaska. We talk about it a lot, but it can't be overstated. Logistics in Alaska can be a huge hurdle. Something simple like rental cars being restricted to certain roads. That's why I have Sam Britch on from Alaska 4x4 Rentals to tell us a bit about their services. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you. I know you're a Rock Slide sponsor, and I'm happy to get you on here and kind of see what the options are. I know you're one of the few companies that let your rentals go up there on the Dalton Highway, otherwise known as the Hall Road. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so uh, we are the largest locally owned Alaskan rental car uh, company or agency, whatever you want to call it. There's only a couple couple companies up here that let their vehicles go up there. Um, it's not your average highway, freeway, what have you. Uh, there's lots of dangers. There's lots of you know liabilities that most other rental car agencies don't want to deal with, like all kinds of rock chips, moose, bears. You know your your typical Alaskan wilderness. So um, we're all pretty avid hunters ourselves that work there. Um, the owner of our company is a huge sheep hunter, a caribou hunter, everything. I myself am as well. So you know we we try to cater to our own our own fellow hunters and yeah i mean it's it's a lot of fun uh being the alaskan guys versus your typical big box um rental car agency yeah and the first thing i noticed a lot about your services is you guys have a newer fleet of of trucks which i think is a huge deal for people that don't know i mean the dalton highway is basically the edge of the earth there's not a lot of help when you get up there you know if you break down you're gonna be stranded for a few days at least yeah um i just drove up last week late last week and we're actually in the middle of a cold snap and uh there was probably zero uh i guess public traffic the rest was all just truckers and it hit below negative 70 on the way up there that's with wind chill so i mean i think it was about negative 45 and gusting about 35 miles an hour plus in some of the spots so yeah it's it's definitely isolated up there um you know but it's it's a whole another world driving all the way to the arctic ocean Let's go through the basics. So, I mean, if we want to rent with you, what's the steps we got to do? I mean, it's very simple. We, we have a website. You can go on and book on our website. You can talk to us. Um, most of our staff is knowledgeable um, as far as, you know, what, what you want, what a good recommendation would be. Uh, like you were saying, our fleet is 2022 or newer. We don't have anything older than that. We have a couple trucks uh, running around just for our backups. You know, I have a plow truck that we can rent out if we need to, that an older one. And, you know, we have backups just in case because it does happen as Alaska. I've run around the whole state with my trailer, you know, picking up vehicles just in case something happens. We have a lot of moose hits but uh it's it's really simple we we're just like the rest of your your normal agencies you can book online you can give us a call ask questions and see what we can recommend you um i had do have a lot of hunters that uh, message me on the forums and they they ask me a lot of questions i try and give them as much information as i can and get them into the right vehicle it's usually trucks uh pretty much all of our trucks have those canopy poppers on them you know with the the like the fiberglass cover over them we rent out to like bbc your tv shows all the gold rush guys all those shows because they have the big pickup trucks, towing capabilities, and all their gear is safe in the back uh, or animals. What's the age restriction there for somebody to rent? I want to say it's 25 years old. Um, and below that, we have uh, we have an extra fee. I think you can be 21 to rent, but then they're, between 21 and 25, there's an underage fee. Oh, I see. And then you're 100% non-smoking in your rentals? Yes, our whole fleet's non-smoking. Um, it's we do get some people that do it, and you will get charged an arm and a leg. It's just how it works, you know. We spend time cleaning all that stuff out and deodorizing it, and full facilities. So all of our vehicles are, you know, we 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 take pride in our cleanliness and customer service and whatnot. So yeah, you won't get into a car that smells like cigarettes or any of that stuff. And what about insurance? Can you kind of tell us about the insurance options? We do require that you have your own insurance, um, uh, your own ins uh, vehicle insurance policy. You can get a third-party one. There's a couple websites that we have that you can go to, but we do require it. We offer multiple uh, supplemental insurances, the number one being windshield insurance. Uh, we have a lot of Jeep Wranglers, and as everybody knows, those windshields are flat, and rocks are just magnetized to those things. So, you know, if you do get a, a chip in the windshield, not a big deal. It's like 25 bucks to fix it. If they do crack, because it's Alaska, not a lot of people realize that you have a crack in your windshield, you turn that heat up when it's really cold outside, it'll just 
crack the whole windshield. You will have to pay for a new windshield unless you get that windshield insurance. That's our number one seller. We have other insurances, um, collision, damage, waivers, and all that good stuff. Um, I can really get into the nitty gritty, but the, the gist of it is um, I had a customer a couple years ago in a, a town called Cantwell, and it was the middle of the wintertime. They flipped the car, rolled it three times, and this was a Chevy Tahoe, or a, a GMC Yukon, brand new. It rolled three times, 35 plus thousand dollars worth of damage. She walked away paying 500 bucks. So some of those things are good. A lot of people think those rental car insurances are a scam. They're not. Ever since I started working here years ago, I have always got the insurance anywhere I go and rent a car. Yeah, that's a good tip. You know, I rent a lot for my job. And for the most part, before you rent a car, if you've never done it before, call your insurance company, talk to them, get their opinion. They'll get you lined out. Make sure you have the right amount of coverage to fit into your rental car. And then they'll give you some advice too. But yeah, for sure, broken windows and paying for a window. And you have to remember too, I know we hit on this, but anything in Alaska is going to cost more. So if you got to get a new window in Alaska, it's not like you're just going to drive down to the glass shop down the street. So be prepared for that. Tell us a little bit about pickup locations and and what you guys have there. So our main location uh, is in Anchorage, which is South Central. If you're going up caribou hunting, it's about a 19-ish hour drive straight through. We have a location in Fairbanks as well. And then the one that people don't really realize is that we actually do have a location in Dead Horse or Prudhoe Bay. We have a gigantic shop. Our parent company, uh, they actually are one of the biggest uh, rental. They have equipment rentals. They have vehicle rentals, truck rentals, heavy equipment, all that stuff up on the slope and all the oil fields. Um, we have a location up there. It's a gigantic shop. Uh, so you're if you're up there hunting up in Prudhoe Bay or Dead Horse, Hall Road area, you're a hop and a skip away from you know something getting getting fixed or replacements or what have you. Uh, not a lot of people know about the elements and the extremities up there, the extremes. It gets pretty nasty up there. So we do have a location up there. It is a little bit more to fly direct in there, but it saves you so much time when it comes to, you know, should you drive from Anchorage or Fairbanks? And I mean, I just drove, I drove up there on, Thursday or yeah, Thursday of last week from Anchorage, I was driving a Chevy 5500 uh, flatbed truck up there with some supplies. And I think we left at 8am uh, in Fairbanks and we didn't get until past 10pm in Prudhoe Bay. So you know, you have options on the way you have some help when it comes to uh, just being close by we, we've got we're the only ones that have a location up there. You're not going to find Avis or Hertz or anybody up there. Yeah, and the other thing to remember, too, you know, it costs a little bit more to fly that far north. They do have a lot of flights going up there for all the workers, so getting up there is really not a problem. The added expense, by the time you really have to weigh the price of fuel, and do yourself a favor before you uh, commit to this trip and and have a good idea, because fuel, when you're in Alaska, and then the farther north you get in Alaska, (laughs) is, is no joke. Yeah, we fueled up in Coldfoot on the way up there. It was, uh, I've actually, I took a picture of it because it blew my mind. Um, it was 70 gallons, 68 and change, uh, or sorry, 78 and change, uh, about 80 gallons. It was $585 and 85 cents. <laughs> yeah. Not a cheap thrill for sure. No, no, not at all. I know there's been some chatter in the past about some hunting add ons some other things you can get with your rental. You want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Um, we have everything you can really need. I mean, we have everything from coolers, which are only a couple bucks a day. I think they're, um, let me see. I've got my website pulled up here. I, I don't know the prices. I run the, the shop, but we've got uh, coolers. We've got CB radios, which are really helpful up on the Dalton highway. Um, yeah, let's see. Coolers are three bucks, three whole dollars a day. 
to rent one. Um, they're not they're not giant ones. They're those Coleman, you know, 24, 27 gallon, 32 gallon, something like that. I do have satellite phones. Um, we have GPSs. We have Garmin inReaches. So anything you could need. I mean, I don't travel anywhere without my inReach. It's always in my backpack, no matter where I am on the Denali Highway, the McCarthy Road, the, the Hall Road, anywhere. It does not leave my backpack. Um, we have the little mini ones for rent. Those are 25 bucks a day, a little bit more. But um, we have trailer hitches to rent if you want to haul a trailer. We even have trailers to rent, which are the 5 by 10 enclosed trailers. Um, we don't rent those out a whole lot. We get a lot of tour guides that use them for luggage and whatnot. Yeah, we've we've got all kinds of stuff. We even have car seats for a couple bucks a day. Um, but yeah, we have we have plenty of accessories. All right, sounds good. Sounds like, yeah, you guys got everything. A well-thought-out, designed outfit. And like you said earlier in the podcast, if you're planning a trip or thinking about a trip, you know, the, it's best to call and then ask them about the options. And also, I guess we can talk about it a little bit, but I'm sure some uh, times of the year are definitely more busy than the others. You want to touch on that a little bit? So our busy season starts uh, in the spring. We have uh, a thing called Fur Rendezvous or uh, the Iditarod. It's all it's all at the end of February, beginning of March, that's when we really start hitting it off. Uh, I mean, we were sold out last year during the Iditarod, which is the dog sled races. Throughout then, I mean, the whole entire summer, we have tourists from all over the world. And I mean, the world. Uh, everybody wants to come and see Alaska. And it, it slowly tapers off in the fall. And then it just hits again with all the fishermen, all the hunters, everybody coming in. We have uh, in the Anchorage office, we have lots of fishermen going down south to the Kenai River, going down fishing out of Seward, Homer, all those places. They're picking up all of our trucks because they want the room for all the the fish boxes and the rods and reels and all that stuff. And then you get up north, you have all the hunters going, not so much the Denali Highway since the Nalchina herd is shut down, but uh, we have all the hunters going up uh, up to the Denali Highway area. We have them going up uh, the Steese Highway area uh, for the 40-mile herd and then the Dalton Highway. So yeah, definitely the summer is huge. Um, I mean, it's it's anybody's guess. I mean, right now we're in the middle of a 550-vehicle military reservation for cold weather training. So there's always something. Um, but the, the heaviest times are going to be in the fall when all the hunters come in. So and then all the fishermen later in the summer. For people that don't rent very often, rental car business in general has just been slammed. So, you know, make sure you get a reservation early and then always call and double check before you leave. So no doubt about that. All right, Sam, I think we covered pretty much everything. You got anything else you want to close out? You think we missed? No, I don't think so. I mean, again, uh, if anybody has any questions, they can they can email us, give us a call. Um, mention my name because I'm the most, I guess, versed in the hunting universe and all that kind of thing. You know, we have a we have a lot of knowledgeable front staff, but uh, they don't know all the ins and outs. They're they're not hunters. Um, the the behind the scenes guys are all the hunters. So um, any questions we can recommend, we can guide you wherever you need to go. I mean, we have a lot of people that are looking for for gooseneck setups and whatnot for trailers and we can we can get you going to the right spot even if we can't fulfill that and if you guys missed it out when i gave him his introduction it's sam britch there and you can get him on rock slide he's got the alaska four by four rentals um they are a sponsor there and then like you said i'll be linking up their website and you can go ahead and check that out and uh, give him a call thanks again sam yep thank you them. you cherish them and now it's time to protect them this is the Mule Deer Foundation. Our mission is the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats, the heart and soul of the West. Join the herd today and help us preserve the legacy of these majestic creatures for generations to come. 
Your membership supports essential conservation projects, research initiatives, and educational programs that secure a future for mule deer and blacktail deer. Our deer, our heritage, our responsibility. Don't just witness their journey, be a part of it. Join the herd. Together, we can make a difference. Visit muledeer.org today. All right, moving on. We got our optics guru back, Matt Cashel. And he's going to tell us about the new Outdoorsman Integra tripod and Generation 2 panhead. So welcome to the back to the show, Matt. Hey, it's good to see you, Sam. All right, buddy. I'm pretty excited to hear about this thing. I know uh, you've had it out and about in the wild, testing it out, siding stuff from uh, Outdoorsman. Yeah, I think it's been kind of a long time coming. I think that the customer base for Outdoorsman has been calling pretty loud and clear for carbon option for a long time. Um, But I know in talking to Mark that, you know, they just wanted to do it right. They have pretty high standards for for their support system. One of the big concerns, you know, is sourcing it made in America, which is uh, outdoorsman always does. And just trying to get carbon fiber in this country can be a real a real hassle. Yeah, I think the costs in producing something in the U.S. are, you know, the challenge for any manufacturer that's going to do U.S. production. The nice thing about that, though, is it sounds like they kind of got to have some input in how they wanted their carbon fiber built. You want to jump right into that kind of... Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't understand every intricacy about it, but uh, carbon and negra isn't really just carbon fiber. It's kind of its own thing that uh, includes carbon fiber and the negra fibers, which are different. So it's kind of its own material that's stronger and more resilient. It resists chemicals and heat and cold better. Pretty neat stuff by what they're telling me. And also the performance was great. I had no issues with it. I know that it's pretty durable. Yeah, I think that was their biggest thing to try and keep their durability up. You know, that's one of the things they're really known for. Yeah. I guess just kind of walk us through the tripod itself and kind of the features it has. Sure. So it's really modular, which is kind of neat. You know, they they, they do have a limited warranty, but even uh, if you do accidentally break something or, you know, have some other incident happen where you just break one leg, you can get with outdoorsmen and they'll work with you to get that leg fixed without getting a whole new tripod. So how it goes together is kind of neat that way. It's got the uh, threading for the feet and the threading in the center column are the same. So I mentioned in the review that you could uh, keep an extra foot there, which I thought would be kind of handy to have. I did lose a foot at one point and found it and made sure to get it back in there with some Loctite. Didn't have any issues after that. But the the real thing about it, so it's got removable feet. It's three sections. It's got the center post, which is a tall center post, but more center post options are coming. All the hinges are machined aluminum, like top end machining. Really impressive. The latches are all high-end releases. And they stayed with the lever locks on this? Yeah, so lever locks. Mark said they're lever lock people, so they they stuck with the lever locks. I'm glad they did. I really prefer it. Um, I think if you're like a competitive shooter and you're going to use a support, then the twist locks have their speed advantage. But I don't know about you. I've used a lot of twist locks, and I get along with them fine. But I do occasionally have to retighten them because they'll collapse on me. And with a good uh, lever lock, and there isn't a better lever lock out there than the outdoorsman, you can adjust that tension so that once you have it just right and you know you can lean on it, it closes with just enough force, but it will never collapse on you. I really like that. 
when I think about lever locks, I always think about trekking poles. Will I trust a twist lock on on my trekking pole? Probably not. Yeah, lever locks I do think have definitely uh, yeah, uh, an advantage in strength there. I don't think you have to be a you know multi-decade backcountry hunter to know that twist locks will sometimes give you some slide, whether it be on a trekking pole or a tripod leg. Yeah, for sure. Sorry, I distracted us. No, that's all right. So yeah. Moving along, it's uh, you can use whatever head you want on it. Uh, obviously, I paired it up with uh, well, a couple of heads. I, I used a Leofoto head uh, that's really designed for shooting uh, for the Snowy Mountain Shooting School, and that just worked great. I, I really like that head a lot, it's a good head. But I also used the new updated Generation 2 pan head from Outdoorsman's, which is I've had their the Generation 1 pan head for many years. Uh, it's still like brand new, it really. It's been all over, but still working perfectly. And uh, I, they just improved it. It's the same head that it'll take Arca or the Outdoorsman's dovetail. So you can go from one to the other without any problem. Just flip the lock and put on the other. That was one of the things I noticed too. You know, they're still supporting their older proprietary attachment system, but they're moving ahead to Arcus West. They realize, you know, it's a lot easier to get a little aftermarket support. Everybody's kind of headed that direction. Yeah, you just the only thing it costs you is about an ounce and a half of weight, I think it is. And it's just a it's just a great head. I, I don't know if there's a better pan head out there for grid glassing with the independent levers the way they are. You can really dial it in and traverse the hillside, go down a little bit and traverse back the other way. So I guess in summary, uh, outdoorsmen, if you've spent any time in the hunting realm, have been the top of the line, the standard, and in the carbon world, uh, still the standard. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the big criticism that Outdoorsman gets is the price, and the price is definitely higher than a lot of the competition, but it's just a pretty premium product. And when you're dealing with optics, which I, you know, technically supports aren't optics, but you got to pretty much need them for using your optics the right way. And you get what you pay for, and you hear that a lot. And it's funny to hear people talk about going to a $4,000 spotting scope, you know, don't bat an eye, but uh, a similar value proposition on the tripod, you know, sets them back a little bit. I don't know. I think it makes sense to me. If you if you really want it for wherever, you want to be able to pass it down to your kids, pretty good option. Yeah, for sure. And I think I mentioned this before, but I know a guy, and he bought the Suara 115 and brought it out and I was looking at it and I was like, man, this thing's so nice. And he was like, yeah, but without this tripod, you wouldn't think that. So <laughs> yeah, you put it on some cheapo plastic tripod and all of a sudden all that performance goes right out the window. All right, buddy. I appreciate you making some time coming on and uh, telling us about this new outdoor product. Look forward to uh, talking to you again soon, Sam. We're lucky enough to catch up with Brock Akers again. He's going to tell us about something that I really hadn't thought that much about and uh, found pretty interesting, the Final Rise Summit XT Vest System. So why don't you tell us what that is, Brock, and how it's useful? Yeah, so um, outside of big game hunting, um, uh, small game hunting is is a huge part of my life. I got uh, a lot of time wrapped up into a couple of German short hair pointers. And, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to live within a couple hour drive of some pretty decent pheasant hunting here in Washington. So there's a lot of traffic in the game bird forum on rock slide, believe it or not. So uh, a perfect partnership with Final Rise uh, to come on and sponsor that forum. And then uh, obviously I had been running uh, Final Rise from their beginning a couple years ago when they first started i had one of their early vests off the line just awesome stuff so fast forward to now you know they came out 
with a pretty sweet system, which is the XT system. It's kind of, you know, they follow sort of the big game backpacking stuff. You can swap stuff out. You can do different bags, pouches, everything like that. Everything's interchangeable, I guess is the word. Yeah, super modular. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I, the XT system is kind of their, let's call it the Cadillac. They, it's their their biggest pouch and best harness and, and all that kind of stuff. Got that uh, this spring actually and uh i got a question before we go too much further how how's it all lay out i mean what exactly when you're talking about the vest system are we talking about it's it's a belt with shoulder straps with the with the pouch on the back i mean is that kind of nuts and bolts yeah so i would say it's it probably based around a really nice supportive waist belt if you will and then you know you have your shoulder straps the harness system that goes up and over because you do a lot of shooting uh you know those are those are going to be a uh, thin material which is kind of the opposite of uh, big game backpacks where you know you have a padded shoulder strap but you're not necessarily putting 100 pounds of uh, meat in this thing so every, i would say everything's probably based around the the belt um and then yeah you have a variety of you know your main back pouch where you put your birds whatever garbage spent shells whatever and then you have some options for water bottle holders first aid kit shell pouches gps pouches whatever you know as you, you outfit this thing there there's a lot of options there it, it all connects together with uh with a uh, Molly style clips, real nice and easy, real similar to, you know, your Kafaru and XO and all that kind of stuff. So real user friendly, if you will. And so lots of options there. In the springtime, I got the XT system and I actually got one of their smaller pouches, which is called the Sidekick. And um, I used that Sidekick to do some training on a new pup I had. Um, It was real nice for putting uh quail or dummies or check cords or whatever in there as as i'm out in the field working and training the new pup so you know it was, it was really nice to use the sidekick all through spring and summer and then right for hunt season i just swapped everything over to the xt system if you will and then yeah mid-october hit the field with the new vest and uh it was uh it was pretty awesome seamless seamless transition from the old one and uh Got to stuff quite a few roosters in that thing this year. So, why don't you tell us a little bit of how you got your vests configured? I run um, basically. I have just the the main back pouch on the XD, which is a nice uh, structured uh, pouch, if you will. You can easily fit three roosters and a couple ducks if you want to in there. Um, and there's a few pockets inside of that that I have a couple little, uh, you know, pliers, some short leashes for situations where I got to leash my dogs, uh, pliers, if they ever want to mess with the porcupine, <laughs> hopefully knock on wood, we haven't had that yet. And then, uh, and then I do two water bottles on two water bottle holders, one on either side of that hold like a 32 ounce, uh, Nalgene, if you will, or one for the dog, one for me. And then, um, and then on either side of that, I have basically their shell pouch, which hold about a box of shells each really comfortably. Um, and you could even, you could put way more in there if you wanted to, but I, that's about how I uh, keep it. Um, and then I run a uh, Garmin Alpha system. And so I wear a lanyard on my control and then that hangs from a clip up on my shoulder strap. Um, and if you wanted to, you could funnelize makes a pouch that that Garmin will fit into and, and clicks real nice and secure up to your shoulder strap. I don't run that um, for no reason other than uh, I just I just like the way mine sits on there. But uh, that is an option for for people. So that's that's kind of mine. Uh, one of my one of my buddies that I hunt with, he actually uh, has the same vest, and he put a the first aid kit on his as well, which um, is pretty nice. They it's a dog first aid kit, um, and it's a pretty well thought out system. And I'm thinking about maybe adding that to my uh, 
to my vest for next year. All right. That sounds uh, pretty impressive. I don't get out and hunt too much small game, but I used to do it when I was younger and it is sure enjoyable, especially after you invested so much time training your own dogs up. Yeah, exactly. All right, Brock, I appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll catch up with you later. All right. Thank you. In closing, if you have a topic you want to hear more about, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on Tipsy Tuesday, please reach out to me at sam at rockslide.com. Until next time, this has been Sam Weaver.